You are listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast presented by NCQA. Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Inside Healthcare. I'm your host, Dave Smolar, Senior Multimedia Specialist here at NCQA. NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance, seeks to improve the quality of healthcare in America. We want to make healthcare better for everyone. We set expectations of healthcare organizations, measure their performance, and highlight those that do well. And we use science to help us build better health and better choices for all Americans. If you're a fan of this podcast or have any comments or concerns, write to us at communications at ncqa.org. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again to the hundreds of healthcare professionals who attended NCQA's inaugural Health Innovation Summit, which ran from October 31st to November 3rd, 2022. And thanks to the hundreds of podcast listeners, all of you, who tuned into our limited mini-episode series of View from the Summit, which provided you free interviews with Summit speakers and attendees. Now, there are eight of these 15 to 20-minute episodes, so if you haven't already, give a listen, drop us a note, and start thinking about our next Health Innovation Summit, when we'll do this all over again. On this episode of Inside Healthcare, we help observe the Lung Cancer Awareness Month of November with a talk with a summit speaker on advances in lung cancer screening, focusing especially on a program and research co-funded by AstraZeneca. Later on, you'll hear from another speaker to appear at the summit, this time talking up the integration of digital tech into healthcare. And then in our Fast Facts segment, some stark stats for you on lung cancer awareness. First up in this episode, in a segment sponsored by AstraZeneca, we meet Dr. Raymond Osaro-Jabon. Yes, it's okay to call him Dr. O for short, he told me it would be okay. And while he's headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee... His work has him travel through so much of the Southeast United States, I honestly could not believe we were in the same room at the same time at the summit. But we were, and we talked, and he couldn't have been more clear about the opportunities available today for successful lung cancer screenings and the challenges in simply getting folks to take advantage of these services. Recorded live from our podcast center at the 2022 Health Innovation Summit, Here's my talk with Dr. O. Lung cancer is a public health problem. It always has been, it's not a surprise. Warnings and fears associated with lung cancer have driven campaigns against air pollution, hazardous materials at the workplace, and of course, habitual smoking. Many smokers are so inundated with talk of smoking causing lung cancer, they're resigned to the idea that eventually they're going to develop it. And this often keeps them from seeking treatment to try to break the habit. Now, our guest today brings good news. We have more options now for early detection of lung cancer and survival. November is Lung Cancer Awareness Month, and AstraZeneca helps run an initiative to allow better detection of lung cancer in incidental pulmonary nodules, or IPNs. So, we have new technology and advances in lung cancer detection, but the challenges remain. Numbers are too low for identifying who's at risk and therefore getting results successfully. And in terms of health equity, even when we have testing and treatment, we have to get people to take advantage of what's out there. Well, our guest today comes with hope for turning all of this around. Dr. Raymond Ozarajaban is the chief scientist at Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation, headquartered in Memphis, Tennessee. 
He is director of the Multidisciplinary Thoracic Oncology Program and the Thoracic Oncology Research Group at the Baptist Cancer Center and principal investigator of Baptist Health System Mid-South Minority Underserved Consortium, NCORP, N-C-O-R-P. Now, I'm, I'm unpacking that. NCORP is the NIH National Cancer Institute's Community Oncology Research Program. Dr. Osara Jabon's research interests center around improving population level outcomes of cancer care by improving care delivery systems and processes. His current major endeavor is the Mid-South Miracle, an institution-wide project to disseminate seven high-quality lung cancer control programs, including tobacco control, early detection, clinical trials, infrastructure, and they're putting this across a 107-county, six-state service area population covered by Baptist Memorial Healthcare Corporation with the overall goal of reducing population-level lung cancer mortality by 25% more above the U.S. average over the course of a decade. Dr. Ozara Jabon is board certified as an internist, specializes in hematology and medical oncology. His numerous honors and memberships are too great to mention here because we only have an hour-long show. But we are incredibly grateful for his work. We're grateful and eager to give him the mic. So Dr. Ozara Jabon, welcome to Inside Healthcare. Yeah, David. Uh, you know, I just want to preface by saying, look, the dialogue about lung cancer is flippant. It's flipping from a death and destruction, doom and gloom, to hope, survival. So what we're going to talk about today is a survival story, which is the narrative that we need to focus on with lung cancer. So starting out, early detection. One of the things that we have known is that the real big bad thing about lung cancer was we had no way to find it early. Uh, by the time people knew there was something wrong, and the cancer was eventually diagnosed. Most people had it at a point where it couldn't be cured anymore. Since 2011, when the results of the National Lung Screening Trial were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and then in 2013, when the US Preventive Services Task Force came out in favor of screening, and then in 2015, when the Medicare coverage decision to make Lung cancer screening by low-dose CT once a year, a covered health benefit in the United States. We have had available to us the possibility of finding lung cancer early in patients who are identified to be at high risk for it on the basis of their age and their smoking history. What is changing that we're really excited about is not only do we have the capacity to find healthy people who are at risk and get them screened? But we now have the opportunity to find lung cancer early by taking already pre-existing scans of patients who had a scan done for any reason that showed the presence of a lesion. And by following evidence-based guidelines, we now know that we can significantly increase the proportion of people who are found with lung cancer early enough to cure it. So it's easy to talk about um, uh, people walking around with symptoms and then they go to the doctor and then the doctor says, oh, you know, there's a new program uh, for a certain kind of screening and if we start with a CT scan, uh, you might, this is a different situation. 
It is, David. It, it, is. it, it shouldn't be. But I, here's the first challenge. One of the challenges is um, you're trying to approach people who are asymptomatic and to encourage them to start the whole process of getting screened and maybe getting biopsied. So where does all of that start? How do you, who qualifies for this? Because you were just talking about who, quali who qualifies, and then how do you identify somebody who is asymptomatic and then encourage them to, to go forward the screening? Yes, David, so the excitement is there, there are now two pathways, okay? The first one is screening. So basically, who qualifies for screening? Right now, in the United States, it is people age 50 to 80 years who are either still smoking or if they quit, quit within the past 15 years and they have a history of 20 pack years or more smoking. Let me just deconstruct that a little bit. What is a pack year? A pack year is the equivalent of smoking one pack of cigarettes a day for a year or smoking two packs a day for half a year or smoking half a pack a day for two years okay so we're saying 20 pack year history active or quit within 15 years and age 50 to 80 sounds like a triple jump doesn't it it's not just a single long jump. You have to wind, hop, skip, and jump. Right. So you can imagine that causes a lot of confusion, especially for primary care doctors. Okay. Right. The excitement is, David, there is an other way to do this, which is we sure do a lot of scans for many different reasons. You know, you're in a car accident, you got some neck pain, you go to the ER, what do they do? They do an x-ray or do a CAT scan of your neck. Well, that CAT scan of your neck actually can show parts of your lung. You go to the ER, you got some belly pain, they do a, a CT scan of your belly. Well, that CAT scan takes off parts of the lower parts of your lung. You go to the ER, you got some chest pain, shortness of breath, whatever. They do a chest x-ray or a CAT scan of your chest. Okay. Very often, these images that we take, for many other reasons, show the presence of a lesion. And oftentimes, the radiologist says, there's a spot. Somebody do something about it. Either repeat the scan in a few months, let's make sure this thing isn't growing, or maybe you should get a biopsy already. Okay? So the, the difficulty when it's incidental. Incidental. You go in for one thing and something and else comes, something and you else. have no idea. And then they, even if they're, even if there's a pathway for, oh, here's what you would do next, it doesn't necessarily mean that you should. And, and to be honest, I know NCQA has at least one or two measures that are cautioning clinicians, physicians against over-prescribing radiological scans. So, you know, there, there's something that's in between there. But on the other hand, if it's incidental, it means you already got the scan. You we already happen, got the scan. You happen David. to see something. It is sitting on a shelf. So what should they do next? So what they should do next is follow the guidelines on how to manage those. So most radiologists will tell you in their report, there's a spot, it's X number of millimeters or centimeters, it's got these characteristics. The Fleischner Society guidelines say, this one, don't worry about it. This one, repeat the scan at some interval, this one follow up with somebody at some interval. So what we're saying is, 
follow those guidelines. And what we're excited about is we now have evidence for the first time that when you follow those guidelines, you can deliver highly effective, safe, cost-effective care that leads to the diagnosis of early lung cancer that saves lives. Tell us a little, remind us about the, uh, the Fleischner Society. I know you're associated with them. I am a member of the Fleischner Society. So you're a member of the Society. So just tell us very briefly, one or two sentences, define who the Society is, and then I'm going to ask you about their, their recommendations that you're talking about, when they were established, and how successful they've been with them, though. Yes. Thank you, David. Uh, the Fleischner Society is a, a society of um, experts in diseases of the chest. It's a multidisciplinary global society that started out, that was started out by radiologists in the United States, in the East Coast, and then expanded to include pulmonologists, thoracic surgeons, medical oncologists, physicists, anatomists. Um, it's a society that is uh, membership by invitation and election only, has criteria based on scientific uh, um, record. Mm -hmm. It's a scientific society. And among several things, what the Fleischner Society has done is provided global guidelines on the management of lung nodules. And these guidelines have turned out to be extremely popular. It's now in its second iteration. There's a second version that was um, implemented in, I believe, 2015. Um, and and th these guidelines are the most readily recognized guidelines, especially among radiologists across the world. Right. So if somebody discovers, or they think they discovered, uh, an IPN, an, an incidental lung nodule. These are the guidelines to help hopefully steer them in the right direction. You know, 2015, you mentioned to me earlier on uh, in another interview, was uh, uh, an important year also in terms of Medicaid coverage for these screenings? Yes, Medicare. The Medicare coverage decision came about in 2015. And what it did was made screening for lung cancer in eligible patients, a covered entity in the United States. Now, the importance of that is not only for Medicare beneficiaries, what it also did, because most insurance companies follow whatever Medicare does, is it, it created overnight the idea of healthcare coverage for lung cancer screening for Medicare and non-Medicare insurance policies in the United States. So 2015 was a watershed year, yes. I, you know, and I hate to say it, um, there's, there's a reason why it took so long, is because I would, honestly, if I asked you, when was the last time you heard of a lung transplant, a true successful lung transplant, which I, I think uh, has been clinically done at some point in the last couple of years, but it's rare, it's incredibly difficult, it, um, or even for a partial one, and, uh, you know, medicine is still at the point of saying, we could remove a, a lobe or, you know, a section, and you would still survive, as opposed to the reverse mentality, which is, there's a way of healing it, or there's a way of, when it comes to your lungs, it's very difficult. They are 
absolutely susceptible to everything that you're bringing into your body. So that might be one of the reasons why it wasn't until 2015 that they have guidelines. And even since then, you said these guidelines are in place, but... Yes, David, let's talk about that. Okay, so the first thing we have to talk about, remember what I said, we go from doom and gloom to survivorship? Yeah. There is a lot of nihilism about lung cancer, which we, we must overcome. And, and let me just uh, lay this out real quick. So lung cancer that is, 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 represents about 12% of all cancers in the United States but it causes 25%, one in four cancer deaths in the United States. It is the defining oncologic public health challenge of our age, bar none, okay? Now, if I told you 90% and 22% five-year survivorship, which would you accept? 90% five-year survival, 22% five-year survival. I think clearly 90% is better. So when we talk about it, disparity, breast cancer survivorship, 90% five years. Everybody diagnosed with breast cancer in 2022. If you told them to go away and come back in 2027, it is 90% of them who will come back. With lung cancer, it is 22% of them, okay? Are we going to sit and accept that, or are we going to do something about that? The opportunity now presents itself for us to do something about that. The primary ways to do something about that are prevent it from happening, work hard to keep people from smoking, and those who smoke, help them quit smoking. Wow. And those who are destined to get lung cancer in God's name, please find it early if you can and do something about that. That's the next question. The next question is the idea of predestination just because I'm a smoker or I've been a smoker. Because we know people, imagine somebody who doesn't qualify for this screening, but they were a habitual smoker, just maybe not on the level that we're discussing. Yes, so part of the, part of, you, you mentioned something very, earlier on, which is very important, I need to emphasize. And that is the idea of stigma. The stigma associated with lung cancer, the stigma from smoking. There is a lot of guilt, self-blame, public blame of people who smoke, fairly or unfairly. Okay? And one of the things that we are working very hard to do is overcome that stigma. Just as we would not look at somebody with a fracture from a ski slope and tell them, you knew better. Why in the world would you go on a mountain gliding as fast as you could downhill and then you broke your leg and you expect sympathy from us? Yeah. We would never think of saying that. Why do we look at people who are exposed to one of the most addictive substances there is to man, we now know, nicotine, that hooked them in and caused them to be exposed to carcinogens that eventually gave them cancer. Why would we look at them with, without empathy and blame them for what they spent a lifetime trying to overcome successfully or unsuccessfully? That's one. 
The other point is that in our society, one of the things that we're learning is if you have lungs, you can get lung cancer. So 15% of all the hundreds of thousands of people who will be diagnosed with lung cancer in 2022 never, never smoked. once smoked a cigarette. Right. Another unknown proportion of people like that not only did not smoke, but were exposed to somebody else who did. Parents in, during their childhood, a spouse, or at, in a workplace. The need to overcome the stigma associated with lung cancer is really one of our big challenges and our greatest opportunities today. So I'm going to ask you another question. It's like these are all the same question. When it comes to digital health, that's one side of what we're talking about at the summit. The other side, for the most part, of what we're talking about is our issues of health equity and being able to deliver all these services and cares and screenings and everything else that we have to deliver them to communities who have been historically ignored and underserved. And the psychology that builds up on a community, not an individual, but on a community basis, there's a stronger level of, of distrust, a deeper level of it for anything having to do with uh, the medical community people wanting to stay home, people finding their own ways of doing things and solving things for themselves. So that deepens the feeling of social stigma associated with smoking and the fatalism of saying, well, I smoked and you know, if I qualify for your screening, that means why should I even bother? It's, it's almost like that. So, so let me tell you why you should bother. There are five different cancers for which screening is available on the basis of evidence. Breast cancer, colorectal cancer, cervical cancer, prostate cancer, now the newest kid on the block, lung cancer. Of the five of them, the evidence to support the benefit of screening is by far and away strongest with lung cancer. The lung cancer, the proof of the benefits of screening for lung cancer has come from two huge randomized controlled clinical trials. One done in the United States, the, Nas the National Lung Screening Trial, and another done in Europe, the Nelson trial done by the Dutch and Belgians, showed the same thing. Those who participated in a low-dose screening CT scan once a year had a 20% reduction in the risk of dying of lung cancer. So that's the first headline use. The second headline use is preventing people from dying from lung cancer in those clinical trials. In that clinical trial, the National Lung Screening Trial, was so powerful, it led to a reduction, a 7% reduction in the risk of dying, period, irrespective of cause, what we call all-cause mortality. There is no other screening test ever in medical history that has shown to do that. Yeah. 
So when we talk about what is the evidence that screening saves lives, let's start from that point. It is the highest level of evidence in any screening program for any screening program for cancer ever. That's the first thing. The natural next question becomes, well, yeah, you could do this in all these highfalutin institutions in the you know, kinds of healthy volunteers that come in to t participate in clinical trials. Yeah. Can you safely, effectively do this at home? And that's where the second excitement comes from. There was a paper published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology earlier this year that looked at screening programs in a huge community healthcare system in the Mississippi Delta region of the United States, where you have some of the most socioeconomically challenging environments in the United States. The population, high risk, difficult to provide care for. Yeah. And what we found was screening for lung cancer not only significantly increased the proportion of patients found at the earliest of stage, increased the proportion of people able to go on to get treatment to cure the cancer, the survival of those patients was exceptionally superior to everybody else. And get this, safety, you talk about safety, the 120-day post-operative mortality in this real world, grab as you can, difficult to serve population yeah. in the Mississippi Delta was 0%. 0% mortality. Yes, not one death so far. In a community healthcare systems, well put together lung cancer screening program in which over 8,000 participants had taken the benefit. It's a huge sample. That's a huge sample. From a specific, a very specific region that everybody, everybody could understand the, the difficulties of reaching them. Uh, Dr. O, I, if, if you have an opportunity at some point in the future to come back and talk to us more, uh, talk to us more about your work specifically, uh, about what it's like to travel through uh, the Southeast United States uh, and what you've experienced in your region, especially in rural areas and uh, places where it's hard to deliver care for a number of different reasons. Um, we, we'd love to have you back. Anytime, David, anytime. That's Dr. Raymond Osara Jabon on new advances in lung cancer screenings, supported in part by AstraZeneca. Again, this interview was recorded live at our 2022 Health Innovation Summit. For training regarding lung cancer screenings, I have a few offerings to mention. First, as part of our 2022 Quality Innovation Series, NCQA offers the on-demand course titled The Importance of Lung Cancer Screening led in part by our Vice President for Performance Measurement, Dr. Mary Barton. I'll add a link for this as well as a page featuring two webinars from the Academy of Oncology Nurse and Patient Navigators. One is from September 2022, titled, The Role of Oncology Nurse Navigators in the Implementation of the Updated Lung Cancer Screening Guidelines. The other, released October 31st of 2022, is Navigating the Updated Lung Cancer Screening Guidelines, 
the role of oncology nurses and nurse navigators in the implementation of a lung cancer screening program. And now another interview recorded live from our Inside Healthcare Podcast Center at the 2022 Health Innovation Summit. This talk with Dr. Juan Espinoza discussed topics in and around the panel he participated in. Side note, this panel was one of a number of quality conversation breakfasts. We also had some quality conversation lunches. These events offered an amazing opportunity in a smaller setting for participants to meet and hear from speakers and change leaders. And not to undersell these events, but just to clarify, when we say quality conversation breakfast or lunch, those often meant a room packed with nearly 100 participants. Now, Dr. Espinoza appeared on a panel at a session titled Quality Conversation Breakfast, Digital Reshaping of the Diabetes Healthcare Ecosystem. He appeared alongside, among others, Dr. Osagi Abikosian, whom I interviewed at the summit and whose interview is posted in our limited series, A View from the Summit. So if you haven't checked those out, once again, I invite you to go back, see what you missed, and you'll get to listen to Dr. Abikosian uh, talk about his views on the same subjects as this interview. Uh, here's my chat with Dr. Juan Espinoza on how healthcare can and should take advantage of the ubiquity of digitalization in our world. Juan Espinoza, MD, is a pediatrician at Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, where he focuses on developing medical devices, health information systems, and patient-generated health data. The guiding principle of Dr. Espinoza's work is that data and technology have the potential to narrow the health gap faced by underserved communities all over the world. He got his MD at the USC Keck School of Medicine, and Dr. Espinoza is also what I call an expert in edutainment, using multimedia as a means of communicating and teaching concepts to students. He uses the same skills in his teaching, his research, and clinical practice, and anybody who grew up on Mr. Wizard and grew up on uh, Electric Company knows what we're talking about. Uh, part of a seminar today titled Digital Reshaping of the Diabetes Healthcare Ecosystem. Dr. Espinoza, thank you for joining us here at Inside Healthcare. It's a pleasure to have you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So we're going to dive in. Let me ask you about um, your seminar today. So Digital Reshaping of the Diabetes Healthcare Ecosystem. First, tell us, what do you mean by the healthcare ecosystem? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and it's and it's... It's a little bit of a nebulous term because when we use, talk about a healthcare ecosystem, it really includes all aspects of health, including potentially pieces that we don't typically consider as uh, as healthcare. Um, so, absolutely, it's care delivery systems like hospitals and practices. It includes payers. It includes the various government agencies and bodies that regulate and oversee healthcare that measure quality, um, obviously patients, and then the technologies that they leverage, but also the various parts of their, their community, of their ecosystem that enable them, or in some cases, it hinder them from actually li living their best healthy lives. It sounds, in a way, it might parallel somebody's healthcare journey as they're going through the system. If somebody gets diagnosed for something and then you have to go to a specialist, you go for imaging, you go to radiology, you go to another specialist, you go to prep, you go to a consultation, um, and uh, digitization ends up being able to follow you all the way, all the way through. 
And that's part. That's what the improvements are that are needed, right? For the absolutely. I mean, we need improvements at each of those steps. And also, when we start thinking about the role of social determinants of health, it's the pieces that connect us from step one to step two, right? So if you don't, if you have trouble accessing transportation, uh, or you have other other barriers uh, related to your socioeconomic status, then how will you get to that to that uh, imaging or diagnostic suite, or how will you get to the specialist? So talk about the session. What, what did you actually cover when you're talking about digital reshaping? Uh, you're, and you're specifically talking about diabetes. I know that's, uh, that's the expertise. And yeah, yeah. But I, I think that uh, what we talked about in diabetes is absolutely generalizable to other conditions. But so our session this morning really focused on the fact that over the last 20 years, uh, diabetes has uh, rapidly advanced. The technology that we use to care for patients, the sensors that we use, the, uh, the ways that we can measure patients' progress, whether it's using continuous glucose monitors, treating them with insulin pumps, um, using various wearables to be able to, to track their progress. And so the way that we define quality of care in patients with diabetes, um, it doesn't really take into consideration the fact that we are treating patients very differently now than we did two decades ago. And so NCQA has been on this journey to update uh, or refresh uh, their definitions of diabetes and their measures of diabetes care. And so the, the goal of today's session was to talk about a, what are the health equity components to ensuring patients have access to high quality care? B, what is the technical pipeline to get data off of these advances in technology and devices, in particular my work focuses on continuous glucose monitors? And C, how do we create new measures that captures all of that so that it can help us guide how we actually improve the care that we deliver? And improving care, ultimately, we're trying to improve people's lives. Absolutely. We, the, the goal of improving care is to improve patient outcomes and, again, help people live, live, their, live healthier, better lives. Now, I want to talk about home care, hospital at home. If services are available to them, they need to know that they can access them and that they should access them. So, uh, so we know that the increase in digital services is great, and then we also need to make sure that people realize how, how easy it can be for them to be able to access them. Patients can, uh, are able to do what we empower them and enable them to do. Right, and so if we don't provide them the education, the equipment, and the support to do that, then uh, I, I don't. I'm not sure that it's fair to expect them to do that all on their own. Uh, you know, we live in this very interconnected society um, where everything from our our education to our neighborhood to our income to our job to our race to our ethnicity impacts and impacts us and the health that we the health care we receive and the health outcomes we can achieve um, and so I think it's important that we build systems within which patients can thrive and be empowered to take care of themselves but we we have to help them get there so what are the some of the challenges that we have in terms of, in general, digitalization of health. And uh, we were recently talking with uh, another guest who was talking about how um, the technology is there. there there's so many, there, there's so many aspects of people's lives now that are not that they're governed by digital services, but they're improved and they're made more efficient and they're sped up. And it seems like the healthcare industry is way behind. 
in integrating digital services for the purpose of making things clearer and, and more efficient and, uh, and enabling people to be able to really monitor themselves and take care of themselves. So where do you think we are with digitalization now for uh, healthcare? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I think the, the challenges are, are really occur, broadly speaking, in four areas. So the, the first is... Uh, are, are technical, and to me, those are those are the easiest. In many ways, the technical ones have been solved. They've been solved by, you know, consumer technology. They've been solved by other industries, and like you mentioned, we're just playing catch up. Uh, you know, you can do incredible things. Uh, you could buy a house on your phone, uh, and yet you might have to physically drive to a hospital to get a paper copy of your of your CT scan and your report. Um, so the, there are the technical barriers, um, which are, as I said, are in many ways the easiest to solve. Um, there's the there's some additional complexity in healthcare where there's uh, additional requirements from an information security and privacy standpoint. But again, none of these things are insurmountable, and again, solutions exist. The next uh, is workflow integration. Right, this is new data, new technologies. So we need ways. Uh, for for our healthcare systems to actually use this technology. How does this become part of a regular visit? Does this replace a regular visit? How do you deliver care with these new tools? You know, healthcare, uh, certainly in the United States, has grown to be this very episodic uh, type of relationship, and digitization has the potential to turn healthcare into a continuous process, but we don't know how to do that, and we don't know how to do that well. The third is integration of payment systems, right? The, our existing ways for coding and contracting don't have great ways to capture the effort and the value that goes into the digitization of healthcare. Um, and so that needs to be done better, right, to create those financial incentives. Yeah. Um, and then fourth, it's the, uh, the, what I would call sort of equitable integration. Do all patients get access to this digitization, do all patients get to reap the same benefits? How do we help patients reap the benefits of the, of the technology? And, and that was my last question was in, to, to some extent it's talking about health equity, but you know, when it comes to equity in terms of people who um, don't have the technology available that others do, and honestly, uh, we're talking about people who don't have, who are living in rural areas and would absolutely benefit from telehealth instead of having a PCP or somebody having to drive three hours in any direction. If they could do a re something with you know, remotely, it would be great. But what if they're living in an area or a community where they don't have the connectivity that everybody else does? So there are capabilities now that we didn't have even a couple of years ago. Um, and part of the problem is now communicating the solutions that are available to the people who need it. And convincing them sometimes that this is what's possible now and this is how we can live. And so what are some of the ways that we can encourage people to be able to use these technologies and, and to be able to help them to build infrastructure to actually be able to take advantage of them if they're way out there? Yeah, and sometimes it's both convincing the providers as well as the patients. Yeah. Um, you know, as a you know, as a as somebody who works in a in a in an academic tertiary quaternary care center, you know, uh, it, that experience is very different than a primary care provider in solo practice or in a community practice in a rural environment. Uh, and sometimes there, there are some gaps there that we have to, we have to support our own colleagues within healthcare on, on, on doing that. Um, 
So, so I, but in general, the way that I that I think about approaching technology uh, in healthcare is a couple of things. So one is always um, assessing uh, people's readiness to adopt. Right? We do this. Uh, we do this. These assessments of readiness or of, of motivation. Right? We use techniques like motivational interviewing, um, and I think technology is no different. Um, and, and so, assessing wh- how ready are they. Um, and what do, what are their perceived barriers? And then what are what do they think are some solutions to overcome those barriers? As well as what are some solutions we think we might be able to contribute? Uh, right? People uh, may not always be in a position to troubleshoot those problems. So obviously we have to come armed with solutions yeah. um, if they haven't identified some themselves. Um, and then really the, the working collaboratively. I think what we've found, uh, w- whether it's in our FQHC um, or working with our, uh, with our Medicaid population or working with rural communities that we serve, is that you know, partnership uh, that uh, is really critical to adoption of any technology. If, if patients, if communities feel like they're part of the uh, selection of the tech process, the selection process for the technology, the integration process of the technology, and even the training and education process, yeah. um, that helps overcome a lot of the distrust, a lot of the fear, um, and a lot of the, the, the trepidation about, is this going to work for me? My chat with Dr. Juan Espinoza, recorded live at NCQA's 2022 Health Innovation Summit. And now our Fast Facts segment, bringing you some salient facts to spread around. As we continue our Lung Cancer Awareness Month observance for this November, here are some things the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention would like you to know. Lung cancer is the leading cause of cancer death among both men and women in the United States. Nearly 9 out of 10 lung cancers are caused by smoking cigarettes. Non-smokers exposed to secondhand smoke, either at home or at work, increase their risk of getting lung cancer by 20 to 30%. Radon, by the way, is thought to be the second leading cause of lung cancer in the United States. Radon is naturally occurring, it's odorless, and it's colorless. So without a detection sensor or an alarm in your home or workspace, you're at risk all the time of exposure that could lead to lung cancer. Find out more by clicking on the CDC's link in this episode's description. But if you've gotten this far in listening to this episode, please consider yourself well-informed and please spread the word on screenings and prevention. As we do on each episode of Inside Healthcare, we now ask for your thoughts on today's show. Email us at communications at ncqa.org anytime with your comments. If you're coming up empty for something to say, here's our question of the week. What digital device inspires you the most to think about the future of digital health? Think about that and then tell us about it. And if you have a comment, suggestion, an idea for a guest on our show, or maybe you'd like to be that guest, just email us and let us know communications at ncqa.org, and we hope to hear from you soon. That about wraps it up for episode 92 of NCQA's Inside Healthcare podcast. Thanks for joining us. This episode's done, but there are plenty that came before it for you to explore and investigate. Share a show, spread the word, help us build our audience by letting others know about NCQA's work. And if you haven't done so already, then connect with NCQA on LinkedIn and Twitter, and you'll get video promos for this show, 
that can be shared with your friends and colleagues. Do a search for hashtag Inside Healthcare. And as always, we thank you, our loyal listener, for helping our audience continue to grow. On behalf of our award-winning NCQA communications team, I'm Dave Smolar, and we'll see you again, no doubt. You've been listening to Inside Healthcare, a podcast brought to you by NCQA, the National Committee for Quality Assurance. Inside Healthcare is available on your computer or mobile device through Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and on our blog at blog.ncqa.org forward slash podcast.